and welcome to Check It Out at EVPL, a podcast from your local library. I'm your host, Lori. And I'm your host, Ryan. And we are recording this on Valentine's Day. Yes. So it's about a week before it's actually going to come out. Yeah. Um, and I, I will be in trouble. Uh, so there'll be an update <laughs> because I didn't get my wife anything for Valentine's Day. Uh, so I, I will have an update in next episode. Not even like some chocolate? Okay. Well, I got her a painting, but that was like two weeks ago. So it's like far enough away away to where I can't really claim it was for Valentine's Day. Yeah. But I don't really go into the whole, you know, you have to do special things on special days. Yeah. If you think of somebody in the moment, just tell them. Like, yeah. If you think of your friend, be like, hey, call them up. Tell them that you think they're awesome. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like a text message from a friend being like, hey, how are you doing today? It means way more to me than a card. Yeah. Or like on your birthday. It's like, happy birthday. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, that's cool. But I'd rather just have somebody uh, – what's a day that doesn't have a holiday? Let's go with March 17th. That sound, does that – I have no idea. March 17th. <laughs> I want somebody to just text me and be like, hey, you're handsome and you smell good. <laughs> and that is going to make my entire month. I am a proponent of what I call half birthdays. So my birthday is in January, which means I never get to actually do anything for my birthday because it's always terrible weather or something, you know, is going on. So I do a half birthday in July where nobody has to buy me anything. I don't want them to. Yeah. But we all get together and we'll go out to eat or something like that. Yeah. That's my half birthday. Spending time together is, is really yeah the, what it's all about. Yes. Uh, so we have – it's also uh, – February is also Black History Month. Yes, Which, very important. Yes, we have a lot to talk about uh, later on in the episode. I did want to get to uh, something that we have to address. We have a correction we need to do for last month's TBR episode. Uh, we had an email from a listener who just let us know that we had succumbed to the urban legend of uh, <laughs> a, a behind a song by Mr. James Taylor, which we appreciate the email. Uh, if you ever no- if you ever notice anything uh, off. With the facts that we're telling, please, please fact check us. Yes, please reach out and let us know. It does not. It it, it makes us feel good. Plus, we get more emails. We love it. Yes. Um, so this was in regards to uh, when Jamie was talking about the James Taylor song "Fire and Rain." Uh, she had just repeated the urban legend that uh, it was a girlfriend that had died in a plane crash coming to visit him. Uh, when in reality, the lyrics talking about uh, flying machines and pieces on the ground uh, is. The flying machine referenced is a band in which Taylor was previously a member, and the death of the friend, uh, Suzanne, referenced in the song, was actually a suicide, not a plane crash. Uh, so they sent us plenty of information. They were links. It was fantastic. I just want to get that on the air, um, and we will provide more corrections in the future um, because we're bound to make mistakes, unfortunately. We do we do research and yes. fact check ourselves all the time. Uh, things are going to slip through. We're only human. Yeah, and we like to talk. And as as we talk, <laughs> things things fall out. Yes, but thank you for reaching out to us and letting us know that. Um, like Ryan said, we appreciate that, and we will always do our best to correct ourselves because, as librarians, I mean, it's the least we can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, if you need to fact check us, or if you want to provide additional stories or background on anything we cover on this, uh, you can do so by emailing us at podcast at evpl.org. There's so many weird urban legends around music and mu- music groups as well. So, so many. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. All right, jumping into the meat and potatoes of today's episode, 
it is about black history, specifically in Evansville. And so I do want to let you know that I am going to be using a lot of sources for this section, which I have included in the episode description. A big one is a local historian and author of multiple texts, and he was a professor at the University of Southern Indiana, Daryl Bigham. Daryl Bigham wrote a couple of books. What were those titles again? Well, we have two of his books in the Indiana Room here at Central at EVPL. Uh, one is titled We Ask Only a Fair Trial, and the other is A History of Evansville Blacks. And anyone can peruse those with the Indiana Room. You just got to let us know ahead of time because they got to let you in. Yes. You can also reach out to our local historian librarian, Shannon, and she will put together information for you as well. She was very helpful with this episode. She helped me put some together. But I did want to give that shout out to Daryl Bigham because he is a local professor and historian. He did unfortunately pass away in 2020, but his work has been very important and influential to this episode. Okay. So Evansville was founded in 1812. And just a refresher, uh, Indiana attained statehood in 1816, and then the actual incorporation of Evansville is like 1817, and the city charter was 1847 for Evansville. So the city is older than the state at this point? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. I was not aware of that until just now, actually, so thank you. So at that time period... Specifically the 1820s and 30s, it was a pretty isolated area, and it really didn't have a lot of traffic coming through. If it did, it was pretty much all from the river, and the area was pretty poor and self-sufficient, and it didn't really have a lot of job opportunities for newcomers. However, in the 1830s, the Wabash and the Erie Canal were built, and that brought in a lot of German-skilled laborers who brought in their knowledge on the economy, which allowed for the growth of the community. So then during the 1840s and 50s, the population rapidly expanded as jobs centered around natural resources began popping up. In 1846, the wharf was improved on, which led to more steamboats coming to the area, which unloaded both goods and people. The first railroad line, which connected Evansville to Terre Haute, was built in the late 1840s and into the early 1850s. At this time period, about half the population spoke German. I think you had some information on the census? Yeah, I have a couple things. One, you can really tell that half the population spoke German because of all the street names. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> it's like every every street on the west side has some kind of German theme going on. Plus, Even where I live on the east side, I've got a, a German street name. Yeah, yeah. And then also with the census data dating back, I, 1820 I think was the first census, the African-American population at that time was only three people. Yeah, so it was a very small percentage of – even though we had a very tiny – population at that time period. It was still a very small percentage of that population. Yeah. In 1850, it was at the peak at 227. And then at 1860, it dipped down to 127 because of the Civil War. Obviously. Yeah. So not a huge black population living in Evansville at this time period. Um, and it stays that way pretty much until after the Civil War. Prior to the Civil War, the Ohio River was a natural access point of entry for both free blacks and those escaping slavery. So even though Indiana's 1816 constitution prohibited slavery, blacks in Indiana didn't really actually have any civil rights. And as the Civil War began, blacks became frequent victims of discrimination. And according to Bigham, Indiana laws that prohibit the discrimination in public accommodations, educational institutions were frequently ignored in Evansville. Unfortunately, that was a thing that happened a lot across the country. So it's not just Evansville or Indiana that has done this, not to say that it was okay. 
Not in the slightest. After the Civil War, blacks from Kentucky and Tennessee came across the river and settled around the waterfront, which provided a lot of jobs. Black neighborhoods started to form in different parts of Evansville, with Baptist Town eventually becoming the main center. And that was around Lincoln Avenue, right? Or Lincoln Street? Uh, around the 600 block of Lincoln. Okay. So it's an area that's still around now. We don't call it Baptist Town anymore. Uh, so there's a place called Lincoln Gardens that was eventually put there and then got transformed into a museum, which I will talk about later. Cool. Despite the discrimination that a lot of blacks faced, by the late 1800s, Evansville's black community did boast a couple of black lawyers and doctors, as well as a pretty solid middle class. However, they were denied the opportunity to join a lot of schools and churches and social clubs, so instead they just made their own. Yeah, and I just kind of want to point out, due to the census data that we had from 1870, which is five years after the end of the Civil War, I had mentioned previously in 1860 it only had 127 black residents. Post-Civil War in 1870, it was over 2,000. Okay, so the population really boomed in the black community yeah. at this time, which makes sense. I didn't really, until I started researching for this show, I didn't realize how much of a change there was in that. So while the black community was providing their own opportunities, unfortunately, it, this didn't really last. In 1903, the worst racial tensions of Evansville history actually boiled over into a full-blown race riot. Allegedly, a black man shot a white police officer after a bar fight. Violence erupted against the black community, and it didn't end until 300 state militia came in on orders of the governor. At this time period, a lot of the black community fled and just never came back. Yeah, I did some research on this, too. There was a mob right outside the old jail, which is still standing, the old jail and the old courthouse, that were trying to essentially get, get at the accused black person at the time. To do mob justice, essentially, which is he hadn't even had a chance to have a, a fair trial, which is just horrendous. Yeah, I know there's a couple of cases throughout Indiana history of individuals trying to get into jailhouses for mob justice, yeah. um, which I think is, historically speaking, kind of more common than people think. Unfortunately. So by the 1920s. Segregation in Evansville schools was actually becoming even stronger. In 1924, the Evansville School Board adopted a plan to close the local black high schools along with a couple of different grade schools. A new building, which would contain both the elementary and the high school, would be built, essentially coordinating all of the black students into one building. This was what was called Lincoln School, which is now Lincoln High School. It was located in the middle of Baptist Town. And while the school definitely had racial motivations to be built, the community supported the school and really fought back against a lack of funds and discrimination they were seeing. It's important to note here that during the 1920s, we would be remiss if we didn't note this, if one wanted to be seen as a good, upstanding, white Hoosier citizen, they were expected to join the Klan. They had roots pretty thoroughly in Indiana. Yeah, and Indiana has been a hotbed for Klan activity for quite a while. And it's hard to think that that's 100 years ago. Like That seems really close. Yeah. It's a little scary. Yeah. I mean, at, at its peak, the Klan held more than half the state legislator, including the governor of Indiana. The Klan actually had political power and sway at this time period. And this was part of what was called the Second Klan as a backlash against German and European immigrants. And it was mostly a Protestant group that had formed the Second Klan here in Indiana, which at its height also estimated to exceed about 40% of all Indiana residents. Wow. 
I mean, the reason why we're putting this history in, you know, you don't really want to talk about the Klan in Indiana. It's kind of a shameful past. But the reason we put it in here is just to highlight the kind of opposition and everything that was going on at the time that all, all sorts of people, but especially black people had against them. Yes, if I didn't mention the Klan while talking about black history in Indiana, I would feel I would I would be doing a disservice to the black community because this is such a huge part of their story yeah. that mm-hmm. we do want to try and brush under the rug a lot of times because it is embarrassing and ugly. So that was the 1920s and 1930s. Yeah. I've just got a little bit of information, mainly in regards to Baptist Town, because we had stated earlier around 1880, 1890 was the start of it. It was a very vibrant community. By 1920 and 1930, we're looking at it's been there for 40 to 50 years. Mm-hmm. And they weren't getting public funding. No. The buildings were getting dilapidated. It was looking more slum-like. So the situation there was getting worse. And in 1930s, the New Deal that FDR had signed allocated funds for public housing. Mm -hmm. So a bunch of community organizers from the black community managed to get a federal loan for what would eventually become Lincoln Gardens. Yeah. And Lincoln Gardens was, what, 200 housing units, I believe? A Dr. Raymond King, a black Evansville dentist and how and the housing manager, said, quote, the main purpose of the project is to eradicate the slums and provide a decent home for the class of people who have low incomes, as well as to elevate the social and economic status of the community. Yeah, it was started in the 1930s. And in 1937, I believe, Eleanor Roosevelt visited at Evansville to dedicate the building and then it opened in 1938. When it opened, it housed about 500 people where the total black population at the time period was 6,500. So it housed quite a few people, but it also didn't solve the problem that they were facing in Baptist Town. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing about it, Lincoln Gardens, is even though most of it was demolished, I believe back in the 90s, they proposed keeping one of the buildings as a museum, which today is where the Evansville African American Museum stands, which is a fantastic place. Mm -hmm. Everyone should check it out. Yes. They do a lot for the community and keeping the history alive. And actually inside of Lincoln Gardens, they have a room, like an apartment, they mm-hmm. kept uh, as it was. Oh, interesting. Yeah, back in the 30s and 40s. So you can you can kind of see what the living conditions were like. In 1939, students from Lincoln High School organized a club called the Merry Makers in response to some unfair practices. At this time, Baptist Town had a lot of stores along Lincoln Avenue that would sell to black patrons, but it wouldn't actually hire any black employees. So the students obviously and justifiably were very upset about this, and they organized a boycott, including picketing with the black community. Within four months, at least six of those stores finally began hiring black employees. All right, way to go. All right, so that puts us, I believe, in 1939, 1940, which Mm -hmm. on the world stage... Something big's been going on. Yeah, this is about World War II time. So Evansville history exploded during World (laughs) War II because we had a lot of defense contracts for production of war materials and supplies coming into the city. I'm sure if you talk to some of your grandparents, you will find out about Whirlpool and all those different businesses that were involved in the war effort. Oh, yeah. We love our World War II history. Oh, yes. With all of this coming up in World War II, that 
gave a lot of demand for employees. The problem was that while the black community was eager to step up, the factories refused to hire them. And if they were hired, they weren't allowed to move up the ladder. And they were generally excluded from labor unions as well, unfortunately. In fact, at one point, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed an executive order to end job discrimination against blacks, and the Evansville factories just didn't care. Just said, nope. Nope. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) They claimed that the black individuals were unskilled and that when the black community asked for access to classes to become qualified, they were just denied by the school. They really did try and do pretty much everything they could to keep the black community down in this particular area. At this point, even part of the white community was also upset and they protested along with the black community. The NAACP attempted to intervene, but they were ignored too. In 1942, the school board built a foundry facility in Lincoln High School so that black students could learn the skills needed to secure those jobs, even though they were still segregated. Yeah, so as they were using the classic line of like, want five years experience for a position that, you know, yeah. you, you're not going to have any experience. Yeah. Course. So then in 1949, Indiana lawmakers passed the Indiana School Desegregation Act, which banned racial segregation in schools. This was actually five years before Brown versus the Board of Education. However, despite these good intentions, Indiana was still a stronghold for the Klan at this time, and many schools continued to segregate for decades and only began to desegregate due to forced busing. In 1968, a group of black parents of children who attended the Indianapolis Public Schools requested that the U.S. Department of Justice file a suit in the federal district courts to charge the Indiana Public Schools with unconstitutional segregation. The case was tried in Indianapolis in 1971, and the verdict, given that same year, found a purposeful pattern of racial discrimination based on the aggregate of many decisions of the board and its agents. Basically, the schools were guilty of de jure segregation, including racist gerrymandering of school attendance zones, segregation of faculty, and patterns of school construction and placement that would lead to more segregation. In 1973, the school had taken no real significant steps towards desegregation, so the district court asserted jurisdiction over the issue and began forced busing. So my mom went to school here in Evansville, and she was telling me, because we were talking about this episode that we were doing, she remembers the forced busing. She was in school in 1969 and remembered having the buses come in, and she did remember some of the reactions of people, you know, that were involved, Mm -hmm. and they weren't all great. I can imagine, yeah, you kind of saw it all over the country. There's Mm -hmm. a bunch of historical uh, pictures of just people being horrible yeah. To incoming black students, like, yes. even like the young, like six, seven year olds. Yes, Ruby Ridges specifically. <laughs> yeah. So many people want to think that Ruby Ridges was such a long story. She's still alive. In fact, she's barely retirement age. So this was not nearly as long ago. I know that we glossed over a lot of history today because we just could not get into all of it. We don't have the time to get into all of it in one episode. It would have to be a multi-episode type thing. Yeah. And even, I mean, even though we weren't able to cover everything, I actually learned a ton because both of my parents went to private school, so they didn't even mention anything that was going on with the busing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was reading this. I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense because it was kind of happening everywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> the busing does stand out specifically to me because it has in- impacted my personal family. Like I said, my mom was there to see that the forest busing was happening, but also my stepdad was one of the students that was being bussed in. Mm-hmm. So both different perspectives are 
in my family. And hearing that this was a thing for my own parents is kind of heartbreaking. Yeah, it's it's recent history. This yeah. is this is not ancient history. But this is really depressing. So I do want to add in a little bit of positive history in the black community. And that is that EVPL has its own history. It has its own chapter in Indiana's black history. Miss Lillian Childress Hall, the first professional black public librarian in Indiana, was hired at EVPL in 1915 as an apprentice to the branch manager of Cherry Street Library. After she graduated, she was promoted to branch manager. Cherry Street Library was the first free public library built north of the Ohio River exclusively for African Americans. It was one of 12 segregated public libraries founded by Andrew Carnegie. Carnegie had donated funds for the East and West EVPL branches, though neither of those branches served the black population. In late 1912, Chief Librarian Ethel McCullough of McCullough Library fame. I, I know that name. Yes. Convinced the library board to approach Carnegie about a separate branch for the black community. Carnegie donated $10,000. I do want to point out here that for both East and West, he donated a combined total of $50,000. Yes, uh, it was significantly less less amount of money they yes. got for the Cherry Street. Absolutely. Um, Cherry Street Library was located in the middle of Baptist Town, and it was ran by a white library board. For over four decades, the Cherry Street Library provided an intellectual center for Evansville's African Americans. It loaned nearly 2,000 books in its first month, and by 1917, circulation had increased to over 15,000 loans a year. That's a lot of books. It is. The library was equally successful as a community center, offering literary clubs for adults and children, Osteen story hours and gardening contests, organized holiday parties and clothing drives. Its meeting room served countless community organizations and groups, including a local branch of the NAACP. And its auditorium was the stage for many public lectures and musical performance. Despite its popularity, use of the Cherry Street Library began to decline in the 1940s. By 1952, the Evansville Library desegregated its library facilities, and much of the city's African-American population had migrated away from Baptist Town and closer to the Lincoln Gardens neighborhood. The Cherry Street Library closed in 1955 and was later sold to a local Boy Scout troop. The building remained an architectural landmark until 1971, where it was raised to make room for an expanding hospital facility. Fascinating. Yes. Thank you for that little EVPL slice of history right there. Yes. So this was a really dense episode, and I feel like it's a lot of Lori talking about history. I hope you got something out of it, though. Oh, uh, I, I learned a lot. We, when we were doing our research, we we were basically researching the same things. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's why it was. I didn't have much to say because you covered it so brilliantly and beautifully. Thank you. I do get into research holes where I'm just digging in and I'm not coming out until I have to eat usually. And I just wanted to make a note of some special locations around Evansville, important to the black history of the area. So we already mentioned Lincoln Gardens, but there was also the African-American leadership where they were mainly housed was that 600 block of Lincoln Avenue. You had all sorts of residents that were educators, doctors, lawyers located on that block. You had the Guardian Home, which was built in 1850 as a home for children who were wards of the county. The Guardian Home was originally located at that site on the corner of South Morton Avenue and Lincoln Avenue. Later used as the Lincoln USO Center for Black Servicemen from Camp Breckenridge. And after World War II, it became home to the Carver Community Center. Also have the Liberty Baptist Church. 
which is on the corner of South Morton and Lincoln. That was founded in 1865 by a group of former slaves, so pretty pretty early on. Yeah, is that, that must be one of the older black churches in the area then. Mm-hmm. The present church that's there is constructed about seven blocks to the west on Oak Street in 1886 and 1887. Liberty was among the most influential and affluent of black churches in Evansville and has historically provided numerous social and cultural programs. Uh, you also have Lincoln School, which was completed in 1928 over on Lincoln Avenue at the cost of uh, over a quarter million dollars at the time. Lincoln School consolidated the African-American student population from Governor Street, Clark, and Oakdale schools. So they were just all brought into the one building. And as the only African-American high school in the area, students were also bused in from Newburgh, Rockport, and Mount Vernon. And it continued to remain segregated until 1972. We also had the Evansville Argus, which was an African-American newspaper that covered local, regional, and national news and ran in publication from 1938 to 1945. And then we also have Governor Street School, which was before Lincoln High School. It Mm -hmm. kind of took it over um, in 1928, but it operated from 1874 to 1928. So very early on, it was serving the community. We've also got the Grace Evangelical Lutheran, which is established in 1934, by the Lutheran Mission Society of Greater Evansville. Grace Evangelical Lutheran Church was unique among the churches in Baptist town in that it was established by a black congregation and had a white pastor. So kind of interesting there. Uh, It eventually later merged with the Peace Lutheran Church. The reason why I'm kind of mentioning all of these is because they are historic landmarks in Evansville, in downtown Evansville, and you can visit all of them on a walking tour that is provided by the Evansville African American Museum. Oh, nice. Yep. All the information I got from them. So we've talked about history today. Now I'm going to go ahead and just do a quick shout out for upcoming events. So the future. We do have in the next week or two, we've got some teen gaming. We've got teen button making. We've got an international children's film festival. Yes, which sounds exciting. Yeah. And we also have an African-American read-in. Yes. That's going to be at Central in the Read Center for kiddos. And then in March, it looks like, just as a general heads up, it is Women's History Month in March. So there is going to be a lot of different passive programs or activity packs throughout the system that you can pick up. Yeah. And because we filmed this a little in advance, we want to direct the best way to find out the upcoming events is on our website at evpl.org. You go into programs and you can filter by age, but it will take you to our events calendar where they update it all the time. So even if you have some outdated information on this podcast, the event calendar will be up to date whenever you look at it. Yes. All right. I've had a lot of fun today talking with you, Lori. I know this was a heavy subject, but I feel like you did a good job. Thank you. Yeah, I wouldn't say it was fun to research, but I think it was important to research. Very, very important. So if our listeners, they have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future topics, they can contact us at podcast at evpl.org. Yes. And if you ever want us to make corrections on anything as well. Yes. Or as to tell us your own story. If you have something that you feel is important to add to this conversation, feel free to get a hold of us. And if we can work out a time, we'll get you in on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. We like we like receiving mail, even yes. though we've had one so far and <laughs> it was about a correction. We still loved it. Hey, that's still feedback. Yes. though. Somebody's still listening. Someone Yay! listened to us. <laughs> All right. And thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful day. Have a great one. Bye.